John and uh, usually on a Sunday I'll be over at our Sid Cup gathering but it's really special to to be with you here today Uh, and I want to tell you about something very you know special to me in my life and that is my 2007 Vauxhall Corsa. Now I don't know if you're a driver here if you remember your first car you ever bought can you remember for some of you it's probably been a few years but uh, do you remember the first car that you ever bought? Now, for me, this was 10 years ago. I just passed, well, I passed a few years before, and I had a, a banger from my dad, but I was ready to buy my own car. And I'd been on Auto Trader for ages, trying to get the best price because I had quite a small budget. And uh, I was living in Nottingham at the time, and it turned out the best uh, deals I could find were in Norfolk. And I'd never been to Norfolk before. Joe is from Norfolk, uh, as you may or may not know. And uh, yeah, there was this black Vauxhall Corsa available in Norfolk. So I set off from Nottingham. I drove the three or four hours it was to get there, and it was everything I had imagined. It was just flat fields for miles, and the car dealership, if you could call it that, was a gravel car park with like a porter cabin and five cars outside it. And I'm not sure if he was like a car salesman or a farmer, he was probably both, but the guy sold me this car, and uh, I've had it for the past 10 years. And I remember as I drove it back to Nottingham, it was amazing. Having had this banged up Ford Fiesta from my dad, I was now in this, this well, I think it's four-year-old Vauxhall course, even with a CD player. I mean, it's amazing. I didn't have to, I had one of those cassette player things that you could connect to your like CD player through the cassette if you ever had one of them. Anyway, it was horrible. But now I had a CD player and electric windows. I could just tap it and it would go down. No winding, ah, oh, it was the dream. And I remember as I got back to Nottingham, I thought, I've got to put a picture of this on Facebook. So I've got to share this moment. So I went to the kind of nicest spot near me, which was that the car park outside Aldi. I don't know why I chose that spot, but I did. And uh, I took a picture of this car, put it on Facebook. And I checked out the picture again this week, and it got an amazing six likes. It got six likes. So a lot of people were celebrating me, obviously, this special moment in my life. And I remember thinking on that day when I got that car, I remember thinking, John, never take this car for granted. Never take this car for granted. It's so special that you've got your own car that you've been able to buy with your own money. Never take it for granted. I know you're going to be tempted to, but make sure you never take this 2007 Vauxhall Corsa for granted. Now, as you can imagine, a year later, the enthusiasm I had for my black Vauxhall Corsa had waned. I wasn't quite so excited. I'd had to pay for a few things to get fixed on it, and it just became the norm. Now, why do I share that story? Like, what what relevance has this got to anything? Well, the truth is, in life, some things that at once were precious and valuable can over time lose their appeal. We can become less excited about something that once just was the apple of our eye and over time things become more dull to us, more mundane. And the truth is, as a Christian, as someone who knows and follows God, the same can happen. Now, of course, God and my Vauxhall Corsa are not on the same par. I can understand that. 
But the truth is, God is far greater. Unlike my Vauxhall Corsair, it doesn't get worse with age. There isn't an upgrade if you've got more money. No, following and knowing Jesus is the greatest gift. It's amazing to know that we can know the creator of the universe. And he's not just some big and unknowable God. He's the one who comes near and is close. And not only is he near and close, he doesn't distance himself when we mess up, when we sin, because he has paid the price for us on the cross. That his blood has paid the price, the penalty that you and I deserve. We can be forgiven and free. We can be confident today. We can be free from fear. We can have peace and joy. And we know that this life is not all there is. This is the most wonderful news, the most precious gift. There's nothing greater. But even the greatest news, even the good news can become dull to us. It can become mundane and even something that we no longer enjoy or appreciate. And over the last few weeks, we've been going through Romans chapter 12. And we've been looking at different things in this chapter. And today we're up to verse 11 and 12. Just two very short verses, but packed with truth that are so relevant to us today. And it says this, Romans 12, verse 11 to 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So let's break that down. The first part, do not be slothful in zeal. Now this is about as Christian easy as you can get. Slothful in zeal. I don't know if you've used the word slothful or zeal in the past week. It's not normally in my vocabulary. Maybe it is in yours. Maybe you speak a bit like Shakespeare, but it's not really kind of a a word or phrase that I would use a whole lot. What does it mean to be slothful? Well, to be slothful is to be kind of tired and lazy and kind of lacking in passion and energy and enthusiasm. And what does zeal mean? Well, zeal is basically the exact opposite. To be zealous, to be full of zeal means to be passionate about something, to be excited and energetic about something. Now, humans are not designed to be slothful. We're not designed to be slothful. We're not at our best when we're slothful. I'll tell you what is meant to be slothful. A sloth. A sloth. Now look at that. How can you not love a baby sloth? That's got to be one of the most cute, cuddly creatures that there is. They just dangle from trees and basically do nothing else. I mean, how can you not love a sloth? And when a sloth is slothful... That's cute. That is cute. But when a human is slothful, it's sad. When there should be passion and life and action and energy, and yet there's none of those things, it's sad. See, when a a sloth is slothful, it's cute. And when a human is slothful, it's sad. When a sloth is slothful, it's cute. And when a Christian is slothful, it's tragic. See, when a Christian, someone who is the son, or you can take the sloth picture down now, it's too cute, it's going to be distracting. (laughs) See, when a Christian, someone who is a son or daughter of the King of Kings, 
Someone who has been forgiven and freed and restored and redeemed. Someone who is seated in heavenly places. An ambassador of Christ Jesus. When they are slothful, then something has gone wrong somewhere. And losing our zeal can happen for all sorts of reasons in all sorts of ways. So, for example, the person who used to love spending unrushed time with God, but has now gotten so busy that that just is a bit of the, the past for them. Or the nostalgic Christian who remembers the good old days and looks backwards more than forwards and becomes disillusioned and disinterested in the new thing God is doing? Or what about the person who's experienced something really painful and wasn't sure how God allowed it to happen? But expressing that pain and wrestling with God just feels a bit too difficult. And so they avoid doing it and distance themselves from him. Or what about the person who told God as a teenager that they would give anything to serve him. But gradually, just as they got older, started to prioritise other things. And now even just turning up to church every so often feels like a struggle. Or the couple who used to dream of ways that God could use their home to serve and bless. But since certain things took place, or maybe just because of covid Hospitality and community now feels like a chore, an effort. And the thought of having people over doesn't appeal quite as much as another night in front of the TV. And there's many ways that we can gradually, as Christians, lose our zeal. When we were once passionate and ablaze and on fire, our hearts can grow cold and our eyes fixed on other things. And my experience, having been around kind of church and Christian for a long time now, is that this usually is quite a gradual process. It's rare that it's just kind of everything was going great and then one thing happened and everything just blew up. Usually it's a gradual thing that happens over many years and, and even decades, at least to the point where it feels like the fire has finally grown up, uh, grown, gone out. Now, this is nothing new. This isn't just a post-COVID thing or a, you know, a, a kind of modern phenomenon. This has been the case since the beginning of the church. It's why Paul had to write these verses in Romans because it is common for Christians, for believers, to grow slothful in zeal. And so there's good news. This isn't a new thing and it isn't unavoidable. There's something we can do about it. And thankfully... The next words in the verse give us the solution. Do not be slothful in zeal, but what? Instead, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, what does to be fervent mean? Well, it's similar to zeal. It means to have, the definition is to have or having or displaying a passionate intensity. Oh, I learned this this week, which is the more traditional of the word fervent, was that the definition was hot, burning, or glowing. That's what fervent meant. It had this fire uh, kind of picture to it, which is why the message translation translates this verse as, don't burn out, keep yourself fueled and aflame. The fire burning. 
Keep fervent in spirit. Or in your Bible, it might say fervent in the spirit, which is perhaps a more accurate translation as commentator Craig Keener says, usually in the book of Romans, where it refers to this word, it refers to God's spirit. And what this verse is saying is just as you need to take steps to be physically healthy, we need to take steps to be spiritually healthy. We need to take intentional steps. We need to make actions that allow ourselves to be set ablaze by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an ongoing thing. And just like with physical health, you can't rely on what happened a long time ago. Now, I'm probably not the only person who knows this, but just because you did a load of exercise when you were younger doesn't mean you're going to be fit and healthy when you're older. I'm not, I'm not making eye contact with anyone in particular, but Nick Lewis was smiling at me there. <laughs> it's true though, isn't it? You might have done all sorts in school. You might have been the cross-country champion. But if you haven't taken any steps to be fit and healthy for years, you can't expect to have good physical health. And we laugh at that, but how often is it true with us spiritually? Perhaps you grew up in church. You've heard every sermon under the sun. You had the children's Bible, the teen's Bible, the university student's Bible, everyone going. You know the stories. But it's been years since you were really in the Word of God, communing with the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, just because we have a heritage of these things, which I will add is great, and why we prayed for it this whole morning, because it's an amazing foundation, we cannot rely on yesterday's manner. We can't rely on things that happened in our youth. We need to come afresh to God today for his word and his spirit, for what he wants to do in us right now. So how do we do that? Well, how do we continue to grow in that zeal and fervency? Well, the verse continues. It says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. A central part to not being slothful and being fervent in spirit is what? Serve the Lord. And you might say, well, how do I do that? How do I serve the Lord? Uh, can I invite him over for dinner and serve him a nice meal? Can I, you know, see him out on the street and serve his need if he's in poverty? Well, can we? See, Jesus addressed what it means to serve him. He gave us the answer of what it means to serve him. He said this in Matthew 25, starting in 31. He says, When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and he, Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here's the key bit. For when I was hungry, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's how we serve Jesus. That is how we serve Jesus. By loving the least, the last, and the lost. You, you hear that phrase a lot around church at the moment because it's something we're really wanting to grow in and we really care about is prioritising the least, the last and the lost. Now God loves everyone, but there's a special place in his heart for those who don't have the power to look after themselves, for those who've been oppressed by society, for those who are lonely and hurting and grieving. God has a special place in his heart for them. And serving the least and the last and the lost is our family way. This is who we are as followers of Jesus. And this is what Jesus modelled, the servant king. The one who said that he came not to be served, but to serve. I mean, if anyone could say, look, I've come to be served, it was Jesus, the King of Kings. He could have said, look, I do this, but you do that. You serve me. But no, he said, I came to serve as an example to us. Isn't it mad that Jesus, just moments before his arrest, moments before he would be sweating blood at the thought of the agony he was about to go through, his final act was to serve and to wash the feet of his disciples. Isn't it amazing that even the risen Jesus still then took the time to cook breakfast for his disciples? The risen one, and yet he cooks fish for them on the beach. The servant king, the one who embraced the lepers, the ones that no one would touch, he placed his hands on. The one who showed acceptance to the prostitute and the tax collector whom everyone in society said, no, they're not good enough. This is our king. This is our servant king. This is our example. And to serve Jesus is to serve people. And let me say this as clearly as possible. If you say you love Jesus, but don't love people, then you don't love Jesus. It's not compatible. If you say, I serve Jesus, but you don't serve people, then you do not serve Jesus. Our way is the way of the servant king. And serving is a lifestyle. And let me just explain that a bit, because I think sometimes uh, when we talk about serving at church, it can kind of get uh, conflated with being on a Sunday rotor. Because practically, we need people to help run the meetings, and we talk about visit newcom.church forward slash serve and sign up to a rotor. And serving is so much bigger than being on a Sunday rotor. Yes, if you are part of the church family, then being on a Sunday road to is just a no-brainer. You're going to serve in the kids or in the youth or in the host team or the worship team or the stage team. That, that's, that's a no-brainer. But if you are a follower of Jesus, serving is so much more than a Sunday. And I think the, the biggest privilege that I was ever given, and it's, it feels very fitting on the day of these baby Thanksgivings, one of the best uh, privileges I ever have was seeing parents who served the Lord. Now, as well as running the kids' work every Sunday at church, they also ran a kids' club in our home every Tuesday night. 
And between 10 and 20 kids would come to our house every Tuesday night and my mum would cook them some sort of meal, usually involved beans and chips and usually fish fingers or turkey dinosaurs. It was kind of deluxe food. And we'd gather together, we'd eat food and we would do games and we would do Bible stories and we would pray and we would uh, sing together. And no one ever asked them to organise it. They just thought we love children finding out about Jesus. So they invited my friends and my brother's friends and our neighbours round the house to learn about Jesus. They did it every week, year after year after year. I dread to think of the number of baked beans that were eaten in our house. And not only that, my dad, his, he saw the, the, the need for children to know the love of Jesus, so much so and that he realised a lot of the kids who came to our church and to our house were from families that not only didn't, uh, parents that didn't believe in Jesus, but often uh, had a lot of um, kind of issues that they would uh, treat their children quite poorly. And my dad was def- desperate to get the love of Jesus into their homes. And so he came up with an idea of starting a DVD lending library. And he bought a load of Christian DVDs for children that he would take around the estate that we live next to. And he would take it into these homes every week and he would give a new DVD to a child, take back the old one. And sometimes he'd just take some sweets or he would take some food for the parents or take some money for the parents. And he did this every week, every week. And no one ever asked him to do it. He never got paid a penny by the church. He wasn't on a rota. But he knew the servant king. He knew that God had given everything to him. And he was desperate to give away as much as possible. See, when you know the love of Jesus and how much he loves you, your whole life becomes about wanting to express that love to others. And especially the least, the last and the lost. See, one of the quickest ways to become slothful, one of the quickest ways to drift or for the fire to burn out in your soul is to become inward focused. It's probably the quickest route to becoming slothful, to become a consumer. It's a bit like with water. As we know with water, if water isn't flowing in and out, it becomes stagnant. If you view your spiritual life or view church as somewhere where you just receive and never give out, you'll get spiritually stagnant. You'll be unhealthy. And even the medical world is recognising this kind of phenomena. I was reading studies this week where increasingly counsellors and psychologists and therapists are prescribing people with mental health issues to go and volunteer for charities that help people. Because what is being increasingly realised is that if you just live a life that is consumed with yourself and is never helping others, then it is bad for your mental health. In fact, one of the best things that you can do if you are struggling is to not just turn inward and be caught up in everything that's going on, but to look outward and express love to others. See, this makes sense. This should make us feel better because we have been created and designed to show love to others to restore what is broken, to break the chains of the oppressed, to love the least, the last and the lost. When we do those things, we are our best selves. We are living out the mandate that God has given to human beings. Serving is so wonderful and it's essential to spiritual health. 
It keeps us fervent in spirit. And the next part of the verse is very much linked to the whole thing of serving. It says, serve the Lord and then rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Very similar to what we looked at before. It's saying, don't just look inward. Don't just look at your circumstances. Don't just look at what's going on around you, but look to God and his promises. And let's just be very real about this. It's so hard to rejoice in hope. To rejoice in hope. Why? Because what it's saying to do is to rejoice in something that you wish you had now, but don't have. It would be easy if it was rejoice in everything you've got. Rejoice when you have that blessing. Rejoice when you have the thing you've prayed for answered. No, the, the verse is saying rejoice in hope. Rejoice in the thing not yet seen. Rejoice in the promise that has not yet been fulfilled. And that's difficult, but it's powerful. And it's why worship is so powerful. It's why worship is so, so powerful when we sing, when we declare the truths of God. Because regularly, let's be honest, when we worship, we sing truths that we don't necessarily feel. We declare promises that we haven't yet seen. But there's power in doing that. Of saying, I'm not just going to look at now, I'm not just going to look at my circumstances, but I'm going to look to God and his promises. And sometimes I hear people say to me, look, I, I say, hey, I haven't seen you in a long time. I haven't seen you at church. How's things going? And they say, well, I, I'm going through a hard time, so I just, I need to be away from church for a while. I need to be away from, from church for a while. And I'm like, okay, well, I, mean, I just want to be real with you. This is the time to be with God and his people. This is the time to look up. This is the time to cling to the promises. Now, yes, it is also the time to cry, the time to grieve, the time to wrestle with God. Follow the examples of the psalmist. You can say, how God? Why God? But like the psalmist, come back to the truth and rejoice in hope. Because what you're going through right now is not the end of the story. When my dad died suddenly two months ago, it was obviously really upsetting. It was horrible. It was horrible. And here's the thing. I knew that in that moment, when the week he died, that I could have taken that Sunday off church and no one would have you know, thought that was a bad thing. I could have you know, taken the Sunday off and everyone said, fair enough, I, I get that. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to take the Sunday off. Because as hard as that pain was, the, the place I wanted to take it was to God. I wanted to remind my soul of the hope that I have. See, my dad was a believer in Jesus. And while his death was sudden and painful and really sad, I know the truth that he's now with Jesus. I know the truth that I'm going to see him again. And I don't grieve like those who have no hope. See, I wanted to be in church to remind my soul of the truth. I wanted to be in church to declare, you are worthy. You are worthy. The songs that we sang this morning, worthy is the king who conquered the grave. 
I could have missed church that Sunday, but how more powerful a moment than to be in that service, having just seen my dad's dead body, to come and say, worthy is the king who conquers the grave. See, if it's not true on the mountaintop, it's not true in the valley. Rejoice in hope. See, when you do that, you experience the promise of God in such a, a rich and powerful way. Jesus promised, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But how are you going to experience the comfort of God and his people if you run from them in your time of need? Rejoice in hope, brothers and sisters, especially if you're in the valley. See, here's the thing. If you only come to God in the good times or only be around his people when you're in the mood for it, you're never going to experience true intimacy with God or true community and relationship with his people. We can rejoice in hope. We can be patient in tribulation and we can be constant in prayer because we know the end of the story. This isn't some empty hope. This isn't us trying to kind of stir ourselves up after we've gone through a hard time. No, this is a hope we can build our lives on. When we see wars, when we see violence, when we see sickness destroying bodies and minds being in distress, when we see relationships causing pain, we know that this isn't the end of the story. We know that these things don't define our lives because they don't get the final say. When we're in Christ, we can be patient in those tribulations. We can be constant in prayer, bringing every care to him, casting our burdens on him because we know he cares. That is the truth. That is the promise. That is the hope we have in Christ Jesus. And today we have a chance to take stock of our lives, a chance to look at how is the fire in my soul doing? Have I let the, the fire go down a bit? Have I maybe neglected being in the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God and serving others? Or maybe for you, if you're being honest, you'd say, I, I, I don't know if I've ever say I, I've lived for God before, but I, I'd love to know what it means to live for him. Well, today, whether it's a 180 turn or just a small course correction, you have an op opportunity to come to Jesus, to bring your life to him, to bring your regrets, to bring your frustrations and to bring your pain. And to say to him, I want to live for you. I want to be fervent in spirit. I want to be constant in prayer, rejoicing in hope, impatient in tribulation. I want to serve and love the least, the last, and the lost. Now, the beauty is that our actions, us being perfect and good and always ablaze, don't save us. It's not that God saying, look, you've had your chance. The amount of times you've come and prayed to me, like, I'm going to make this right now, God, I'm going to make it right, and still you've done that, we're done. No, God isn't like that. His grace is uh, so abundant for us that your actions don't define whether he loves you or not. And yet, he doesn't want you to just live on embers. He doesn't want you to live lukewarm. He wants you to be ablaze and afire in the fullness of life. And we can experience that, brothers and sisters. 
This isn't an empty promise from Jesus. This is a promise from the one who can fulfil it. The one who can give you that fervour once again. So why don't we just end now by praying? And I, I just encourage you, wherever you're at, just maybe to, to kind of close your, your eyes and open your heart. And to just come before God with a, a sober assessment of where is the, the fervour in your heart? Where is the, what is the condition of the fire in your soul? Jesus, we thank you that you are the most wonderful gift. There is none like you. I thank you that you are truly the rock on which we can build our lives. I thank you that your promises are true, not only in the, in the good times, but in the bad. I thank you that your presence is near and that you especially are near to the least and the last and the lost, that you save those who are crushed in spirit. For anyone here right now going through a, a valley season, I thank you that you are near. And God, it's our desire that we wouldn't just get through life on yesterday's experiences, but that we would come afresh, that we would come fervently, saying, God, we need you. And Lord, I pray just especially for those here who are mature in faith, who've been around the block a few times, who've heard it all before. I pray for fresh zeal, Lord, fresh fervour. Where there has been a dullness, would you bring a sharpness? Fan the fires of our soul into flame, Lord. May we be burning hot for you for our good, but for the good of the world who so desperately needs you, Lord. And God, I thank you that your arms are open to all. And for anyone who today who wants to receive you for the first time, I thank you that if they come to you, you receive them with open arms. We love you, Lord. We worship you, Jesus, the servant king. With our lives point to you and your love both today and every day.